It is the 200 level episode. I lose track. It's episode something or other. And we're in the basement on Memorial Day. And Harry Black and Trevor Belize, we're going to have them jump on in just a second. But a quick reminder that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe. All the best deals and prices online at dpdoe.com. And they deliver to your house. So you can stay at home, shelter in place. They'll bring the delicious calzones to you. dpdoe.com. Also, Fourth and Kirby online at fourthandkirby.com. Use coupon code 200 level or the 200 level to get 10% off your order. And you can add that coupon code to their existing deal. 365 days a year, you can buy two shirts, get one free at fourthandkirby.com. Also, State Farm agent Brian Hansen online at brianismyguy.com. brianismyguy.com for all your insurance needs, life, auto, home, business, renters, you name it, brianismyguy.com. Three times I said that domain name, Trevor, and a good Memorial Day to you. brianismyento.com. <laughs> there you go. Just And then make sure not to type in that 200 level. For uh, for you know fourth and Kirby because you're not going to get anything if you type exactly that, that two hundred level yeah yes that or they two hundred level or L E L you yeah. wouldn't want to do that either but we are not uh, it's a common mistake to call us L two hundred level but yeah. El Dociento level <laughs> guys level in Spanish so I'm going to be you're probably right honestly I'm <laughs> full transparency here okay so on Friday or Saturday again I'm losing all sense of time but it is nice to have a three day weekend even though I don't really work that much. Uh, compared to what I used to do. But anyways, uh, I'm sitting here Friday after the news comes out that student-athletes, and Harry, we'll get to that term in a bit, student-athletes will be back on campus June 3rd, and this is a sort of phased-in thing from June 3rd to June 8th, and it will be football and men's basketball to begin, and then later in the summer in July and into August, you'll get the other fall sports gradually. So this is a phased reopening, so to speak. And Josh Whitman gave some details, though there are certain logistics that we will learn over the next couple of weeks, I'm sure, including apparently plans to somehow get fans at least in the tailgate lots, if not in the stadium, for football games. But let's start with the larger discussion here, Harry, because I found myself kind of stumbling over this Friday. I stopped recording and I said, I'm just going to wait until we get an actual student athlete on the 200 level. Yeah. There, there's one word that Trevor found out, and Trevor, I want to get you after Harry here, but there's one word that Trevor really picked out on Twitter that I agree with. Voluntary workouts. Yep, because that's a thing, right? That's certainly a thing. Voluntary workout, because every heavy quotation marks, like 45-pound plate quotation marks, student effing athletes know that a voluntary workout is not voluntary. It's voluntary in the sense that, yeah, you can come. If you don't, you just probably won't see the field. The two aren't related, I can assure you that. But just know that these volunteers, completely up to you whether or not you want to show up. But you know what? If you don't come to this voluntary film session, this was a couple of years ago, uh, you know, personal experience. Yeah, voluntary film session tomorrow. I know that you've been here over the, um, the what is it, the capped limit of mandatory hours that the NCAA says you can have during a week. But we will have some voluntary film session tomorrow. Just know that if you don't come, you're going to probably have some involuntary uh, punishment <laughs> workouts at tomorrow at 5 a.m. Not even something that's going to help you just rolling down the field, just messing up your equilibrium for the rest of the day. That's a personal vendetta that I just hated doing those. But the whole the, the, the basis, what I'm trying to say is voluntary workout, absolute crock of you know what. It's oh my god. What I said on started. On the voluntary workouts. What I said on Friday, Harry, during my opening segment that I sent scrapped was, you can take that word voluntary and wipe your ass with it, essentially. Yeah, because <laughs> I, 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 I was close to making this an explicit podcast, Carp, because that that's just something that... And here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with and of itself. If a coach says to you, come in for voluntary this or that, because in a regular season, in a normal season, the people I'm looking at myself, I can see like the veins on my, on my <laughs> mouth or, or on my neck are starting to pop out because I am livid with this, what, like how this is being presented in a regular season. When a coach gives you the option for a voluntary film session, a voluntary workout where everyone in that position group knows that it is not. So everyone at the same time though, understands I'm going to go in because I want to get better. And I know we're going to have to do everything we need to do or everything that we can do. And more, if we want to stay within two touchdowns of this team, we're playing this week. So in a normal circumstance, I get that. But in this circumstance where you say, okay, let's open it up for voluntary workouts. The players are still going to have the same mindset as they would in a regular situation. And now they're going to be coming back into a situation where by all, by all stretches and by all um, indications, it's not safe for the general public and the general student population to come back on campus yet. So how are you calling these people student athletes when in this situation, they are not being students first. They are being athletes first. Harry, I'm, I'm glad that I waited because I found myself sort of waffling a bit because I cannot speak to what it would have been like to be a student athlete in any circumstance, let alone during COVID-19. But what I was also concerned about, you, you mentioned the voluntary, quote unquote, and how it's not really voluntary at the end of the day. And I was also yeah. trying to consider, and this is probably me thinking about the sports movies I've watched. I probably have a very kind of Hollywood vision of what a locker room culture is like. But I'm thinking that that would be another possible ramification. And Trevor, I think you might have had a Twitter conversation with maybe Isaac Trotter. Uh, you you might have said something like, well, what if it's Brandon Peters that doesn't show up? Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it also depends on who the player that voluntarily decides not to show up is, if there's going to be one. Now, I doubt there is, as Isaac pointed out to me, from what he knows and what any athlete knows you know, I mean, 22-year-olds are not going to – I'm not trying to play Dr. Fauci all of a sudden, but 22-year-olds are not going to ca- catch this and die. And so I would think any 22-year-old who, let's say, is up for a position battle or something or they're the quarterback of the team, I really, really doubt Brandon Peters is just going to say, no, nah, I'm good, I'll just sit at home. Yeah. But I'm just floating the hypothetical uh, – well, okay, I'll pick a different one. Andre Corbello's in New York. Well, we all know New York is really bad right now with COVID, or at least it was. What if he just decides not to show up? I don't think anyone's going to blame him, but at the same time, isn't there something in the back of your mind if you're another athlete in that locker room going, man, I mean, like, we're basically risking all of our lives to be here. Why isn't he? Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, when you are an athlete, and I'm, I'm trying to come at this at every angle I can because I do want to make it clear and obvious. If I was back in school in this situation and they told me I could come back on campus Knowing that people in my demographic around 20, 21, 19-year-old, you know, student, st- student ages of 18 to 21 or whatever it is, I would 100% be in that weight room. I would be doing everything I can, every opportunity that I had because I would know, like you said, Trevor, even if you do get sick, chances are you're going to be able to recover. They'll put you in quarantine and you will recover. You'll be fine. So I, have no, I am not blaming these kids right now, these these um, these players, for going in there and getting taking advantage of the opportunity that they are being presented with. I am putting this 100% on the NCAA and the school saying that you should not give them the option if you are not bringing back all of the students. It shouldn't even be on the table. 
I think that's my big concern here, Harry, is as I look at a campus right now that is a ghost town and will remain so during the summer, we are singling out specifically, and it's not even just student athletes, it's revenue sport student athletes that yes they get their scholarships but the reason that football and men's basketball it's so transparent it's so <laughs> transparent and i'm sorry and I it's know, not like it, the, it's not like it's something the, we don't you know, know though yeah yeah I mean, but we know that men's basketball and women's basketball not women's basketball and football are the most important sports they never admit it but they're basically admitting it by doing this sorry to cut you off here continue but Oh, it's kind of ironic. All I was going to say was, I'm sorry that I'm interrupting because I know in this format, interrupting is. Hey, you know what? I think that I have something to say about. Oh, wait, I'm sorry for interrupting. My bad. Um, And, you know, the only reason I'm saying all this and the reason I'm being this, you know, kind of Stephen A. esque and how loud I'm getting is because this is something that I'm passionate about right now and something I just. I understand it, but at the same time, I don't understand how they could be this transparent about it. It is it is very transparent, and Josh Whitman is someone that lived the student-athlete life, and I think he is looking at it, and I'm sure that a lot of these football and basketball players are looking at it like, ah, oh, thank God we can get back at it, we can hang with our friends and our teammates. So there is some positive uh, things in terms of how those 18 to 22-year-olds will be feeling, uh, just be able to get back to the day-to-day grind of it. But here's the thing, though. Um, even if on a football team of you know 90 guys between the scholarship and the preferred walk-ins and all that, 90 to 100 players, I'm guessing, Harry, that are there for summer workouts, even if they kind of phase this thing around, that there are going to be a handful of them that have, let's say, a family member that has an autoimmune issue, or they know somebody, a close friend or something that is more susceptible this, to this than others, they may very well enjoy coming back for these uh, practices and training sessions. But on the other hand, they will essentially be in quarantine because they, if, if they're being you know smart about it, cannot be hanging out in a football performance center, even if there are only eight other guys in there, and then that weekend say, hey, grandma, how are your lungs today? You can't, I, I don't know if you can risk that. So essentially we're telling these select few, yes, you are not your typical student. You, you are an exception to the rule. We wouldn't feel comfortable holding a class of 20 people in a large room over at Lincoln Hall or whatever, but we are comfortable with you being in the football performance center or at the oven. And to me, that's such a, as you said, transparent. That's a perfect word for it. The double standard has never been more apparent than right now. And I, I usually would like Illinois to be in a position of leading the way. But in, in an odd way, I don't know if I'm very fond of Illinois being the first one to plant their flag in the ground here and say, hey, here's the model. Because this could vary. If it blows back, if something happens, and I, God, I hope it does not, but if something happens, there's going to be some major egg on the face of this DIA. And the other thing is, like, it, you have you bring in a hundred people, and I'm trying to think when when I was there, you would usually break it up into groups of twenty five to thirty kids, maybe maybe a couple, a little less, maybe like a couple of groups of twenty five, and then the last one, or groups of thirty, and then the last one will be a smaller. Uh, freshman group just based on what their you know everyone's summer schedule is you have like four or five ish groups of people that are in the weight room or on the practice field on a given day when uh when workouts are going on you're gonna have to make that so like you said carp like eight people you know eight you you're not going to be able to have more than like eight to ten um athletes in there at a time talking about the weight room simply because the more people that you put in one area, the higher the risk is the, uh, 
the higher the risk is that everyone in there is going to end up getting this because of how contagious it is. I saw some crazy number. I think my brother's friend told me some crazy number. Like if one person out of a hundred, and I think it's something like, you know, I think I'm not sure what the number, but if one person out of a hundred has COVID and all those hundred people are in that room at the same time, the chances for people, like a lot of people getting that is pretty damn high. So you're going to have to keep, maybe eight to 10 people in a gym at the same time for these workouts. But then you also got to look at it like this. If you're bringing them in, how effective can these workouts be? You're pushing up insane amounts of weight situations where you're going to need to have other people's help. I've had so many times when I was in there, I'm, I'm under the bench or I'm spotting someone on the bench and not by my fault, not by their fault, but it happens. And this is just one instance where you're spotting them you are dripping with sweat, and it drops onto their face. And I'm, I'm not trying to be gross. Uh, the, I know, I know. But that is the kind of, of environment and atmosphere that you're in in a college weight room when these people are doing this. You're mm-hmm. touching other uh, surfaces that people have touched. You're you know, rubbing shoulders. You're rubbing bodies with other people that are sweaty. You're going to be – I'm amazed that I didn't get more sick in the time I was there. And now you're saying that this unknown – contagion is out there I, I just i don't see how you're gonna even if you do put them in the weight room how effective your workouts really can be when you're having virtually no contact with one another well i'm sold on joining a football team <laughs> <laughs> hey did i get to did I tell you that you get to have short-term memory loss afterwards cool that's sweet. My, no kidding that's my favorite part seriously that's yeah. awesome uh you know what yeah. i was thinking too when you were talking about that harry is and i've never been remotely a power lifter i don't really do things that require a spotter but just going to enough gyms even just local gyms you get the people that are putting significant weight up they need a spotter and the first thing i thought of before you even mentioned sweat because the cdc came out within the last week and said some good news is that it doesn't tend to live on surfaces as much as we thought yeah what was that well, that's good, right? I know, but we've been wiping things off for months now, and they're like, "Nah, you don't need to do it." It can, but no, I, no, no. I, it can live on it, but I, it's slightly, it's it's a lot less transmissible than through the air. And I'm just thinking, in terms of spotting somebody, if I'm the spotter, I'm not worrying about sweating on the guy beneath me. I'm worrying about the guy who's breathing in and out with every bit. Because you, you mentioned Harry, the example you used was a hundred people in a room, one person has it. There was a choir, and I think unfortunately it was a senior choir go figure 68 members and i can't give you the exact numbers but well over half of them because of one infected choir member they had a rehearsal this is in early march and at least half of them contracted the virus a few of them died so that's how transmissible it is and i'm just thinking in well they're singing right their mouths are open yeah and that that has been actually shown that's why we don't have any gigs on the docket uh, for the for a while because that is one of the first things that i remember reading that singing or yelling is, for anyone that would be yelling at this time is one of the worst ways that you could transmit something like this. But, um, you know, Trevor, I, I go back and forth too, because can I play devil's advocate? For yes. A second? I, I'm glad you are. Okay. So I don't necessarily buy into this, but I think the counter argument would be twofold. One, you know, bringing students back is 40,000 kids bringing, what, 100 football players, 10 men's basketball, and 10 women's is 120 kids. That's it's a like litmus test almost. 0.005%. Now, I'm not saying that they should – I'm not advocating – I'm with you guys. I'm not advocating that they should be the guinea pigs here, and if something goes wrong, it's like, well, at least they were our test subject. But there is a large difference between bringing student-athletes to campus 
and bringing students back to campus. And then I guess I'd also say, <clears throat> I don't really know if, I mean, do we know that Illinois, I know Illinois was the first to announce and the entire SEC announced like an hour later, but I don't really know that there would be significant egg on only Illinois' face just because they there were wasn't. the first one to present this idea. I don't know that they came up with this idea completely themselves. You know what I mean? I think that's fair. And you're right, Trevor, in that if you're going to, and I know that Illinois and most other universities, they plan on having in-class instruction, residence halls open, all of this stuff in the fall. And essentially, yeah, you are using these student-athletes as guinea pigs. But to me, this is, and I don't want to use this situation um, outside of player safety and, and lump it into a larger discussion about student-athletes getting compensated, especially those in revenue sports. But it just seems like I can't help but fall into that maybe trap or fall back into that argument. And, I mean, Harry, you know the amount of hours and energy it took even for you as as a walk-on on that football program. Um <laughs> Cheap shot. No, 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 no. Well, I do, I do want to. I do want to just get this out here, and I know I've told you guys this before. Yeah. But I just want to make it pretty clear and obvious that a walk-on spends virtually the same amount of exactly. time doing whatever a scholarship athlete does. It's just the fact that you don't you don't get uh, compensated for what you do on the uh, or, or get compensated for tuition or any money from the team or from the school or whatever. And you know, I I understood that going in. I understood that as as a as a um, as a freshman, I understood that I wasn't going to get any compensation, and that was my choice to make. So I'm not talking. And this, like you said, Carp, it is hard to kind of straddle the line between this and and should the uh, college athletes be paid? Because I'm not well versed enough in that field to really be able to say one way or the other. I kind of go back and forth. At the end of the day, what I think is, you know, where you should start is understanding that the time that these athletes spend at the facilities takes away from their opportunity to go out and get a minimum wage job like another student could do. And if you're telling me that these, um, that these quote unquote student athletes are the same as just any other student, well then they're being, they're uh, being stripped of that right to go out and try to make um, some extra in uh, income by means of a minimum wage job. So in that regards, I think that that's where you should start. But at the same time, like I said, I don't want to get into that because I think this is more of a situation where it's the principle of the fact that you are clearly making it obvious that you're bringing back these people that are essential, essential, where have we heard that term recently, essential right. to, to, um, to make money for the, uh, for the school and for the NCAA. And just a little bit what you were saying, Trevor, in that you know it's different than bringing back 40,000 people. This is a, even a little bit different from that because in a normal summer – in a normal summer, you would have um, you you would not even have forty thousand people. You'd probably have closer to five or eight thousand people who come back for summer classes. And my counter argument to that is, if you're bringing them back for that, and even if you're not bringing back any other any other um, any other students or anything. Well, technically, that's something that could have just been done this whole time. That could have been done since the students were removed from campus. Now, I'm not saying that should have been done, but I'm I'm just saying. Like, what's the rationale then for bringing them back now as opposed to just never even bringing them, like, taking them away? I guess my overall point is just parts of this frustrate me, and there's certainly implications that frustrate me, but I don't really know how else they were supposed to go about this if they were going to reopen. I mean, can you imagine if they said it was mandatory? 
and the backlash they'd get from that if they said you had to show up. I mean, they have yeah. to throw some type of qualifier in there, right? Because otherwise, they're just going to get killed by media and, and everybody else. But Trevor, I think it's all, to counter it's that. All just- Sorry, real quick, Harry. It, what I was thinking in, in terms of voluntary, though, and that's how we started this discussion, and I think that's the one major sticking point, is that there are going to be ramifications, even if they're unspoken, for the athletes that don't come back. There just will be, whether that's in the locker room or whether that's the way that the coach perceives them or looks at them going forward. And that Whitman, for as eloquent as he can be in saying, here's the plan and here's how we're going to execute it, I expected a little more in terms of defining what voluntary really means, and how are we protecting these student-athletes and their decisions and making sure that there are not there's not unforeseen blowback for saying that I don't feel comfortable. I, my situation precludes me from coming back. Didn't get enough of that, but again, that might be right. some fine print stuff too. I'm not sure. No, you're right, though. I mean, that's why I tweeted that on Friday was the my, my fear with this is just the implication that the word voluntary doesn't really mean voluntary because like, okay, let's float another hypothetical. And I know we can do hypotheticals for days Yeah, and I'm sure people probably just get frustrated of every coronavirus hypothetical out there. But to your point that you mentioned earlier, let's say, I don't know, name a random player on the defense who's in a position battle. I don't know. Shaman Cooper. I know his mom had it and she posted about that and she's fine now, but let's just say Shaman Cooper's living at home and he lives with his uncle and his uncle gets it. Well, now Shaman can't come down to Champagne, I assume, right? Otherwise, he's just bringing potentially it from his uncle to the workouts. Unless he doesn't so tell the coaches that his uncle has it and he comes back because he wants to win the position. Exactly. And you and I am not going to blame a player for that in that situation where they basically see this as their only opportunity to be the starter on the team. And how could you when that's just been installed in their brain that over the last couple of years of their being here, voluntary never means voluntary. Yeah, no, you're right, and, that, and that's my that's my point is yeah. there's an uh, it's an unspoken elephant in the room to, to to say you don't have to come, but if you don't come, you might lose your position and not start this year. I mean, what are you supposed to do in that scenario? You're definitely supposed to come to campus and you're supposed to try to compete because that's what's going through everyone's head right now. But again, and then I don't know how else they're supposed to do. Like, I what 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 would you have changed about the rule? Let's assume they still want the kids to come. I feel like I guess what I mean is the only solution to this is then just not have this happen and say just wait until we're 100 percent safe. You know what I mean? That yeah, and that's and I'm sorry, but in this situation, if you're telling me that it is not safe for the general population to come back, then why are these kids the exception? I would agree I mean, with that. And, and that's all I'm saying is that if you are really trying to convince everyone that these people and that the thing they always say going back to high school, your coaches always say it to you. From high school through colleges, you guys are students first and athletes second. Well, that's clearly not the case right now. Harry, would you feel comfortable coming back? Let's say you're in Florida for the summer with your family. You're between your junior and senior year. And I could add a caveat, too. Like there might be a position battle or you have an opportunity to find yourself in the too deep. But you also... I'm I'm putting too many caveats in there. Let's just start with the if civil I, leg. If, if would I, you feel comfortable going back? If I was given the opportunity to come back on campus, I 100% would come back on campus. And that's probably what's going through virtually every one of these uh, kids' minds right now. Probably so. Yeah, and and that and I am not saying that is a problem at all because I have been there. I understand. You want to do everything you can to get on the field. But 
I, I'm just looking at it now, saying that if you are, if you are a uh, an athlete on this football team or on this basketball team, you are just being taken advantage of by the school and by the NCAA. And then, of course, the next follow up is. And this is the question with any sport that's going to resume. What happens if someone tests positive? Right. Because I think the push with the NBA, the MLB, I don't know if this is the same with college, is we're going to strive to not have to shut everything down if someone tests positive. Because obviously, if the NBA ramped up and went to Orlando, Disney World or whatever, and then day one, someone tests positive, I don't really think they're going to shut it all back down. So then the question becomes, Tony Adams has tested positive after practice one. Well, what do you do? Well, and, and, and the problem, Tony Adams and anyone that was covering him in a drill, like, I, what do you do? Yeah, and the problem here, Trevor, yeah. uh, among many, right? I mean, this is just the unforese- unforeseen problems that could, you could run into. And I know that however many T's are crossed and lowercase J's are dotted here, that you are going to have situations come up that you didn't plan for. And with professional sports, <laughs> you like lowercase the lowercase J's. Thank yeah. you. It's a Wayne's World, yeah, too. No <laughs> so. Here, here's an example, right? Or here's what I've been thinking about. The big difference, and I've drawn this line in the sand a long time ago as a sports fan, collegiate over here, professional over here. And part of the reason that professional sports, even though I may not have the same sort of passion for the Bears as I do Illini sports, having grown up in Champaign-Urbana, when certain unsavory aspects go on with the Bears, I can look at it in an almost business-like, well, that, you know, the way they're running things up there, I don't really approve of, but they're all paid and it's whatever. I don't have this sort of ethical dilemma that I run into sometimes with college sports. And this only heightens that where, you know, as Harry's mentioned, and this is the big thing I was kind of wrestling with over the weekend. We are treating these guys as exceptions, even though many of the players would tell you in a moment of candor. Yeah, I want to come back. Even if there is a slight risk, I want to be back with my teammates and getting back on the field or on the court. But, This right here with the NBA, uh, presumably starting on July 15th in Orlando in a controlled environment where you have 30 teams and 12 players per team and you got five coaches per team and you had support staff and all that. I I understand the numbers get bigger, but for college football, I mean, college basketball, I could maybe see this working. College football is going to run into some stuff unless they just simply don't report it and don't tell us, which that is even scarier. There's got to be. I mean. There's there's going to be cases in college football if you've got eight water people on the sidelines, eight equipment managers. I mean, there's got to, I mean, Harry would know better than either of us, but there's probably hundreds of people that are involved on a college football Saturday, right? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you have, I mean, even you take away all of the players in all the coaching staff, you still have the equipment people, you still have the people, uh, the trainers that are, are basically helping you know, kind of facilitate stuff with people in the locker room and people in uh, like players in the locker room and players on the sideline, or even if it's at the hotel getting ready, you have people in the, uh, on the medical staff, you have people, um, you know, running even people that aren't there every day with the team that show up on a Saturday, you have people running the, um, you know, like stuff for TV or stuff for radio. You have so many people involved that I mean, even outside of the uh, the hundred players that are on the sidelines. Well, and let's shift the hypothetical to the coaching staff. I mean, I don't want to cast a dispersion here, but the highest demographic of risk for COVID is African American men over sixty. Guess who your f- head football coach is? I mean, yep. seriously, like, what if oh, someone yeah, on the no. team tests positive? He, I mean, Lovey Smith is by definition high risk for COVID. Yeah, and and I mean, 
and, and that's the thing is then you get into a situation where you're, you're basically saying, and I'm just thinking about this right now, because if you did have these 10 people workouts where you would have a, a trainer out there with them or multiple trainers out there with them, and one person gets sick, say like you said, Tony Adams gets sick. Okay, well then naturally you're going to have to quarantine everyone that was on that on the field then. So those ten players. Well, not just those ten players. You're also going to have to quarantine the people that were training them. You don't really have a hundred trainers for this team. You have like five or six people. Uh, by trainers now, I'm meaning like uh, strength and conditioning coaches. That you you're basically going to have to treat them even different than you're treating these athletes. So. What did they it's get impossible. preferential treatment? And then you're basically telling me that they are being treated even more importantly now than the uh, than the athletes that are out there. That's basically just backing up the idea that they are being put into a more dangerous situation than anyone, whether it be normal students or coaches or the training staff. Everyone else is being treated uh, in this hypothetical as if they, uh, you know are high risk and must be protected except for the athletes. And here's the bottom line. Of, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say this one more difference between professional and collegiate sports in, in terms of the athletes in professional sports. If the MLB players union decides that, yeah, we're going to come back and they know the protocol, they know the risk, all of that, then there's not really an ethical dilemma. If as a union, they're going to make sure they got enough protections in there if they decide to come back or not. And the same thing with the NBA Players Union. There is no student-athlete union. This is not right. a back and forth between a student-athlete representative and the university. This is the university saying, all right, student-athletes, welcome back. And that, that's, yeah. that's it. You are serve, you're serving someone if you're a student-athlete. You're agreeing to something if you're an MLB athlete, right? Exactly. And, and here's the thing. Let's not pretend that everyone in every union – MLB, NBA, NFL, that every player is going to agree with the way that it's ultimately settled, right? There's going to be people that don't necessarily like it, but they'll go back to work just because, you know, the same sort of things that these student athletes will deal with. They don't want to be that guy on the team that, you know, didn't show right, up for training camp or anything. JJ Reddick's daughter has asthma. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, it's a completely reasonable reason not to be there, but if he's forced to be there what's he gonna do you know this leads me to is a, a larger discussion and i had posted last night on twitter about how you know donald trump had talked about we need to open up the schools asap and there's a couple of things wrong with that one what schools, does that mean by the way it's summer <laughs> well that, that's the first problem it's a memorial day so why would we open them up asap secondly the uh my day would consist of 125 kids coming into my modestly sized classroom and even though I wouldn't necessarily, I would find a way to stay away from all of them. <laughs> you know? But when you got that many people in a room, I don't know if six feet apart's uh, necessarily going to do it in terms of the way they can be transmittable through the air. So I just voiced that concern and said, you know, I want to get back and see my students and I want to get back in the routine of work and everything. But, and I didn't get into specifics about, you know, at the end of the day, there are family members with autoimmune issues that, what does that mean then? I go back to school and I can't hang out with them until there's a vaccine. And that is a concern that is valid for many. But unfortunately, this whole discussion has gotten hijacked politically, where I get a response from someone saying, oh, yeah, sure, let's just wait until there's a vaccine. And I'm like, listen, you ass. I'm just saying, here's my concern, and I'm happy to have a dialogue. But when I get something like that, it's it's maddening to me that we can't have a legit discussion about safe ways to open things back up. And the minute that you address a concern, you're basically called a word that starts with P and rhymes with pussy. 
right? Or you're a hypochondriac. And to me, that is just so counterproductive. We can't even find uh, common ground. Middle on how ground. To, middle ground on something that could affect anybody. Anybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, there was that video circulating of what was it at the Ozarks with like 500 people in a pool or something. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, while obviously I think that's dumb, you know, there's also responses that are saying, well, what are you, you going to do? Never go to a pool again. That's not what I'm saying. Exactly. Why can't why can't I go to a pool with two people <laughs> and be in separate corners of the pool? Like, I, I don't understand why you either have to say I'm going to live in fear until I get vaccinated in January of 2021. Or open the floodgates, let's have 5,000 people over for a Memorial Day barbecue. Like, where is the middle ground where I feel reasonably safe going to get my hair cut and then I use Purell? Why, why is that not an option? Why is it either never get my hair cut again or go every day to the hair? You know, you know what I mean? Like, I don't get it. It's frustrating on a number of levels, Trevor. And as a 33-year-old that, I mean... I think I'm healthy. I don't know if I have any underlying health issues, not that I know of, but it's not about me getting it. It's about me getting it. And then the spheres of people that I would like to start hanging out with again, my family first, and then close friends and gradually expanding that sphere as we're told it's, oh yeah, it's okay. You can hang out with a group of 12 or 15 people. I know it's 10 coming up here, May 29th for Illinois. But uh, to me, it's just, all right, we don't really know what this thing does yet. It's still a new virus. And yet by simply voicing some concerns, but also saying, hey, let's have that discussion about going here or going there or hanging out with people, what's safe, what's not, that it immediately becomes an A or B, black or white. It's just like pick a side. And it's it's very frustrating. And uh, never once have I proclaimed to know the right way to go about this. But there's a lot of people that are. And I'm like, well, I hope you got I hope you know more than I do, because well, <laughs> there's some people that speak with such certainty about it. And, I, and really, my question going forward at this point is, uh, what, uh, how do I put this, what market improvement are we looking for before we move on to something else? You know what I mean? In the sense that I don't really, it's not going to disappear anytime soon. And we're not getting a vaccine for at least another few more months. So what is the difference between me doing something on June 1st and feeling safe and me doing something on June 12th and feeling safe? Right. You know what I mean? Right. I don't really know what the... I don't either. June twelfth, my uh, my brother's birthday, by the way. Hey, I happy know that's birthday. important information. Well, then I would go out. I'd risk it to celebrate <laughs> Harry's brother's birthday. But yeah, I just mean, you, know, you know, like what? If I ask, what are we waiting for? It sounds like I want everything to open up, and that's not what I mean. But I just am wondering from this point forward, what is going to be considered market enough improvement to 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 feel safe doing? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I hear it. Going yeah. to the, Going to the grocery store right now is not going to feel any different for me than going to the grocery store in November at this point. From what I heard, and I, I, I wish I could give credit to uh, you know exactly what this was, but at, at least in places like New York, there are guidelines for returning back or reopening, at least. like I think in New York City right now, it was something to the effect of we need to go 14 days straight without... Um, or with 15 or less new cases per day so that you kind of get to a point where you've leveled it off. So I think certain places are having some kind of guidelines, but you're right. But Trevor, that's just so, it's just so arbitrary though. Like why 15? Yeah, exactly. And that's, if, that's if you exactly. have 16, if you have 16 one day, are you starting the whole cycle over? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, 
it's it's a weird kind of it's unprecedented i know that's a word everyone throws around nowadays and i know everyone nowadays says that's a word we're throwing around a lot nowadays but it is you know it's un unexplored waters we've never been in this situation um you know in this era i mean the last time that you could even kind of draw a comparison would have been a hundred years ago with uh with the flu pandemic and and, uh, Harry, don't yeah, feel so bad I, for saying unprecedented when everybody else is, because I saw about 18 people on Twitter last night making the same joke about Last Dance, parts 11 and 12, about the Washington Wizards and the Charlotte Hornets, as if that was funny the first time. And it's, listen, don't, in this time, don't feel bad for repeating. I mean, because essentially, there there is a limit on the topics of conversation and an example man would be, these commercials but go ahead oh my god <laughs> oh my it's like god. only five co- it's like only five companies signed up to do covid commercials and they're like yep let's just run these five thousand times a day there was one creative one with the woman who says i was born yeah that was good during, and, and the first time I, I saw that trevor did you think this as well the first time i saw it i thought it was but from the from the uh, point of view of a woman in the year like 2090 talking about what it was like <laughs> being born in 2020. I did not think that. <laughs> That's what I thought the first time I saw it. And then I was like, oh, no, she was born during the flu. That makes sense. She has like a det- detached head and one of those spherical things <laughs> on top of a spider's body. She's like, here in 20 or 21, 20. Now, I, what I was thinking, though, was that I will sometimes like even this morning, I ask her, I was like, so what do you want to do today? She just kind of laughed because I say that every day. Well, what is there to do? It's the same. Like, we aren't going anywhere. We are, so, we are channeling our very best old men right now, guys. We are. Well, but, and, and, hey, sure I, looks sunny today. I like parts of it. Up, man. That rain is not going to be good for the crops, except <laughs> for on days where it'll be good for the crops. But it's, it is something where, Harry, you mentioned like not being repetitive. And that's why I just – another reason I just X'd out and closed the – opening segment from Friday because I was just getting redundant in 15 minutes. I'm like, Jesus, like, this is enough. And, and that leads me to the other side of this thing with sports getting going again, especially professional, because, again, I don't have the same ethical dilemma because they got union representation. But it, it's like, God dang, I, I need some live sports or something uh, to get out of the perpetual, basically speculative, speculative conversation. That's, that's all we can really do right now. Everything's speculative, and like you said, it's either speculative or, as you mentioned, Trevor, arbitrary. This date, we might, you know, what changes between now on May 25th, as we're recording this, and on June 25th, other than maybe we enter phase four in Illinois, and okay, that opens some things up, but what does it drastically change? Yeah, no, and and, and it's just... I understand that things would physically change if restaurants are now open outdoors or whatever. Which would be great. But I'm just saying, from your personal uh, fear perspective, I don't really know what's different about me in terms of how worried I'd be catching it today than how worried I'd be catching it in October. And hopefully there's some, you know, something tangible that happens that makes me less fearful. And I'm not saying I'm running around being fearful. I'm just being, you know, wary and cautious, again, trying to find the middle ground between paranoid and not at all worried. Um, but I just I, I wonder from this point forward why and it, it, it's just it's a tricky bottom line because obviously when I say why are they picking June first as this arbitrary date to open more things up well what are they going to do open it up at midnight slowly and transition like they have to choose a date right so it, it's just, it's this weird bottom line and this really goes back to the bottom line of the sports conversation is 
it's impossible to not sound arbitrary when you're trying to reopen things. So your option is either reopen things or don't, basically. Seems like that, right? In terms of yeah. the sports thing, there's always going to be a problem with it. So it's either, okay, well, then accept that there's going to be cases that are covered up, accept that there's going to be hypotheticals, accept that there's going to be problems, or don't do it. And for me, yeah, I, I, hey, go ahead, Harry. Well, I was just going to say, like you said, uh, Trevor, I, I think that the only way you can go about starting up these leagues again, and I think they're doing it, you know, at least the way they're talking about it for baseball and for basketball. Uh, those are the only ones I've heard of right now. I haven't heard anything for football. But the way they're going about it, it does sound smart in that you do understand that you are not going to go through a season without anybody get, catching the virus and that you have to have constant testing and protocols for how to uh, proceed with the season if someone gets sick. And like you said, Carp, it, it is, it's, it's worlds different between what they're doing with uh, college athletes and what they're doing with professional athletes. For, for, I guess the biggest reason would be because of the union, because they have some kind of representation, uh, because they're not basically being blackmailed with these voluntary workouts. That's the only, that's the best word I could basically think. Uh, to kind of describe it is, yeah, you know, these voluntary workouts, you can come back if you want, but if you don't, is that blackmail? Because you're not really threatening them with uh, you aren't threatening them with any evidence that they did some. I don't know. It's not quite extortion I don't think either. That's blackmail. It's holding yeah, something it's over black- your head and saying, yeah. and, and maybe that is getting in the realm of blackmail, but people might listen to this and scoff at that. But this is where I, I also find the tricky balance bet- between open things up or don't. Again, not knowing as much as, well, we don't know crap at the end of the day. Even epidemiologists are still figuring this thing out. But I'm thinking, okay, well, wait a second. On the other hand, you know, we can't wait forever. Back to your point, Trevor. We can't wait forever. They're either going to open it or they won't. And if they are going to open it eventually, well, you might as well just open it now because this thing isn't going anywhere. And it's hard to wrap your head around. Um, credit to you know Josh Whitman if he is being very safe in terms of how he's figuring out the protocols and all that. And I have no doubt that listen, this is going to sound really hokey. And Harry, you can call me out on this if you think this is BS. But this is where he, having been a student athlete himself, I'll give it a slight bit of benefit of the doubt in terms of the plan they put in place because he lived it more than I would an athletic director. Like let's say when Michigan had the guy that used to run dominoes. Okay. Um, not nothing wrong with dominoes, but if the guy I wasn't like a, dominoes, <laughs> but if the guy wasn't wrong with those cheesy breadsticks, <laughs> tell you guy, what that two for five bucks deal is something else. That guy uh, knew yeah. what he was doing. Greg, <laughs> he, basically, he basically hired the two for $5 version of, Brady Hoke and Rich Rodriguez there for about a decade. So that's where, and this is Harry. You can joke, not land. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I heard it. I heard it. It was funny, Trevor. <laughs> but I, I do think that, or at least I should say, not think, but hope that that personal experience will inform his decisions going forward. And I under, I also understand that if he doesn't open it up, and this is where you take away the player safety thing and think solely about the competition and keeping your athletic department in uh in a uh, would solvent be the word economically like you want to stay in the black right that you need to ramp things up so there's the business aspect where he needs to consider being on the court being on the field having some level of success if you want this DIA to continue to make money and then there's the other side of player safety 
if this was well, a spectrum, where, though, this is it's certainly more of a decision based on the business side of it. That's where it's irresponsible of the NCAA and the Big Ten to basically say you got to have all these schools come back or none of them come back, or else you're giving one school an unfair advantage over another one. You can have whole conferences because how often are we going to play the SEC? Not that often. How often is a loss against Vanderbilt or a loss in a bowl game against South Carolina going to determine how um, you know how long Josh Whitman keeps his job? Not often. It's going right. to be can they stay on the same kind of playing field? as Purdue, as Nebraska, as Minnesota. And if those schools are coming back and you are not, then that is something to be fearful of if you're Josh Whitman. As far as as far as far him having the experience as a student athlete, I would almost kind of hold that a little bit against him right now because then you know if you're Josh Whitman, and I'm not sure if he has final say in bringing these uh, athletics back or I if think it is he someone would. above him at this. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's a school thing. It, wouldn't it be the school has to sign off on being allowed to bring back them as students? That's a great That's question. I would think they'd have to to some extent, but ultimately he runs the athletic departments. So, I mean, it, it would maybe be something that he needs to go to the chancellor and say, here's yeah. what I'm planning on doing. But you have a point yes. there. I had not considered that. So let's just say for the sake of argument that he does have the final say in bringing these people back. Well, then you are going to if you're Josh Whitman and you're calling these voluntary workouts, you know what you're doing. Because, I mean, just look at me. I know what these guys are doing. I know that when giving the option to come back, they are 100% going to, and that in doing so, they are being taken advantage of by the school and by the NCAA. And he knows that as well. So being a student athlete, I even have to, or a, or a former student athlete, and I hate that term, and every time I catch myself saying it, I just remind myself that I hate that term. But every time, or, or if he if he finds himself telling these guys that they can come back he's got to understand that i know what i'm doing i am 100 percent giving this heavy quotation marks that this is voluntary but that if you don't you know what's going to happen because the same stuff was done back when he played here and when he had voluntary film sessions and voluntary workouts athlete student doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well as student athlete nah well then how about we just call them athletes too boring <laughs> because remember, Harry, according to those commercials from the NCAA that air every March Madness, 99% of athletes, it's like, well, yeah, no kidding, because you got sports like, I mean, sorry, but where's the professional hey, that guy has for... a great life. He wakes <laughs> yeah. up, he goes to class, he studies for hours, he has a really nice dinner at the dorm, he goes back to his room, and he goes to bed. Yep. Oh, well, you forgot the uh, waking up at 5 for getting taped and getting treatment at 6 for a workout at 6.30. After you're done that workout, making sure to scarf down a meal in 5 minutes to make it to your 8 a.m. class that you have to schedule then because guess what? You got practice at noon and then you got classes afterwards because you have practice from noon to 4. But, but, but you only really have practice from like 130 to 3:30. The rest of it is voluntary getting there so that you can film study and so that you can rehab afterwards. But you probably shouldn't schedule class for then. Just just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad then, then, and, then and remember Lovey Smith doesn't let you scooter to class or scooter to practice anymore cuz those are unsafe, right? <laughs> You gotta yeah. walk. That was controversial, wasn't it, Harry? The the banning of the scooters. Oh yeah, I never had a scooter, so I mean, for me, I kind of just looked at it as um, 
Why are you doing that, Lovey? You're just kind of making life difficult for everyone else on this team to make it from one place to another on time. What was the bigger Lovey blunder, Harry? <laughs> the, the scooter ban. The scooter ban or Garrick McGee? <laughs> oh, come on. Easy uh, answer. Yeah, yeah, I think it, I, yeah, you got to go with uh, Mr. Never Actually Proved It When He Didn't Have Lamar Jackson. <laughs> What was his college? Because I feel like when he got hired, people were excited, were they not? I think, again, back to the, the lovey idea, Trevor, the reason that I was excited was I looked at this one, two, three punch of lovey at the top and then Garrick McGee and Hardy Nickerson, who, while Hardy was not a proven recruiter, Garrick McGee kind of was. And I thought, man, the, the ceiling for recruiting for this holy triumvirate. We didn't ever call them that. I'm just kidding. But the, the the ceiling for these guys is recruiters should be astronomical. And as we saw, of course, that's not remotely the case. But One refused to recognize talent. The other one, quote unquote, retired in the middle of a season. And the third is last in the FBS in defensive uh, statistics. So, yeah, quite a holy triumph there. But, but they are getting recruits, Trevor. And here's the thing. I want to – this is the – They are. I mean, credit where credit's due. Credit, they yes, are. they are. However, it's sort of like if you don't eat for a month and then someone hands you a piece of celery with peanut butter on it, it's going to be the most amazing piece of celery with peanut butter on it you've ever had because you've just been starved for so long. So, Yum. Ants I'm, on a log. Nothing wrong with some ants on a some log. Some raisins some on there, too. On there. Oh, yeah. But that's, that's what makes it tricky, Trevor. Yes, credit where credit's due. They are landing guys now. But in the context of the Big Ten West, it ain't good enough. You know, and and oh, it's, in the context of the West, it's terrible. So yeah. essentially, it's like I'll I'll give them credit where it's due. But as me and Steve Brettweiser talked about last week, it is his program. It's year five, so I'm not going to treat him the same way I would. No offense, Harry, Tim Beckman. I'm not going to treat him like a guy that you hired from the MAC. You didn't hire a guy my from boy. the MAC. My boy, my boy. I think, Timmy, I think Steve did. Steve did bring up a good point that I laughed at, and he's great at this. These little jabs, and he, what he, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how he put it, but he said. We are giving Lovey credit for upgrading the talent through the transfer portal, but at this point, all the talent on the <laughs> roster is his. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, like, you're used to going, "Well, he's upgrading the talent." Well, whose fault is that the talent needed to be upgraded? It's yeah. it and is. Then, oh, go ahead, Harry. Well, I was just going to say you can kind of draw that back to the whole thing of when you brought in this good talent initially, and now you're losing it all. And I've said this before. You guys have heard me say this before. The reason that we lost. All these uh, these players that were supposed to be seniors this year, whether it be Bennett Williams, Lou Dorsey, um, I, I know I'm. Don't forget Trey some. Watson, who led the nation in tackles at Maryland. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you just kind of drove him away with the way that you were you know, putting all these freshmen in. Um, and then the, who who is the other line? Larry Boyd. So all these players that you're putting in as freshmen, and the reason I'm not including Trey Watson in this in this group is because, uh, and I've told you guys this before, when you put these kids in there. As freshmen, you're basically telling them you don't really have to earn this position. It's already yours because we are selling you this idea of immediate playing time. It goes to their heads, and it's not a coincidence that then they kind of think they can get away with anything, and boom, they're all off the team because they got in enough trouble. So you, you can say on one hand, oh, it's like, I never you know, even thought about that. Yeah, geez, yeah. that makes yeah, a lot of sense. On, <laughs> yeah, on the one hand, you're saying, oh, it's kind of fluky that, you know, you got your best players, Bennett Williams and Lou Dorsey, and all these freshmen that come in. It's kind of fluky that they're all kind of, you know, getting kicked off the team or having troubles. Well, it's kind of instilled in them from the get-go. They can get away with whatever they want because they never had to earn it. 
Harry kind of just blew my mind there. I know, mine as well. Yeah, you're <laughs> wow, that's that's a whole psychological component there too, because you're probably right. I mean, it's the same thing if you tell a little kid. If I told a sixth grader the minute they come to class, hey, uh, we don't do A, B, C, D grades for middle schoolers anymore. They're called exceedings. So if I tell a kid who comes in, you got exceedings, don't worry about it. You're you're good. Then they aren't going to try as hard. That's just the nature of it. Or they're going to start slipping up in in areas that they might not otherwise. And it's not as if Levy needs to, you know, listen, it's part of a sales pitch for someone rebuilding their program that you go to a recruit and you might tell them, listen, you're going to be a core member of this. You have a great opportunity to start right away. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I get that. But it is, this is in year five, credit where credit's due again, Trevor, you're right about that. They're starting to get actual high school four-year talent, including the offensive lineman from Missouri, which is a legit good pickup. But it's just comparatively in the Big Ten West or for the Power Five, it's still awful. So I, I just find myself kind of cautioning and trying not to be a cynic about it and, and giving him credit where it's due, but also recognizing it's not enough. And you couple that with coaching acumen that I just i am not convinced about. Well, this weekend you see um, Loxley at Maryland adds to his brother. Now, I don't know how good he's going to be, but obviously it's the name and he's a five-star quarterback. And then uh, Greg Schiano picked up two four-stars, and I think they have like a top – 30 class for 2021 at Rutgers, I think. I'd have to check that, so, but I know that they're killing it in state, and Jersey's a pretty so good yeah, football I mean, state. That's, that's another comparative thing. And you're right, Jersey's, Jersey is, is a good area. Jersey has got, I think, one of the top prep schools as far as football goes. I think Don Bosco Prep is the number one high school football program in the entire country. Watch out for Rutgers, man. Maybe not this year, but you're lucky you're getting them off your schedule because they're going to be like a middle-of-the-pack East team once he gets things you, up and running. You are, but you aren't. Harry in that instead you get Penn State. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess it's I guess Rutgers will be the lesser of two evils. I actually agree with you there, Harry, though. Like I I don't I don't know that they're gonna be good. They don't have a ton of talent this year, and I think they got like four grad transfers and none of them were ruled eligible because you know that's how the NCAA works. Yeah. Um so I, I don't know that they're gonna be good, but I would agree with you in the sense that um I don't know that at Rutgers is so automatic that it, you don't even have to watch it. You know no, I, I agree mean? with that. Yeah, it's, it's going to get to the point where you probably look at the East and say, I mean, I don't think Rutgers will be the basement there anymore. You'd probably think it's going to be alternating between Maryland, probably just Maryland, because Indiana's got stuff up and going. But it, now I'm kind of talking myself into circles because the East is so loaded, you guys. <laughs> but the West is... Oh, my God. But here's the thing. You, you have just emerged on the other side. This is a decade. If you look at the Big Ten West from 2010 to 2019... You had the Wisconsin's in the world, fine. You had Iowa winning seven, eight games a year, fine. I don't even want to hear this because it frustrates me so much, but continue. You have Northwestern somehow kind of falling ass backwards into seven, eight win, and an occasional 10-win season, but they're still Northwestern, right? You got Purdue with Daryl Hazel, and then you had Jeff Brom, but we don't know 100% about Jeff Brom yet. Nebraska with their worst decade of football ever. In Minnesota, pre-PJ Fleck floundering as one of the worst teams in the Big Ten. And you didn't do a damn thing about it. Well, I, I and now they're all since... on somewhat solid footing. And the the, the, weird, the biggest question mark is probably Nebraska and if Scott Frost is merely going to win seven games a year or like nine or ten. And I will ugh. say for Minnesota, I mean, I think Minnesota early on in the 2010s wasn't good. But 2014 on, they were Jerry pretty... Kill, you're right, that's fair. Yeah, from there on, I 
mean, they were getting Oh, stop, you years. Tracy Clay's defender. <laughs> hey, 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 if you look at how, how bad they are historically, the second half That's of the true. decade, they were making bowl games pretty much That's a good year. point. That is, I had forgotten about. It's, it's just so, uh, it, it, it physically frustrates me to think about that decade and the number of opportunities you had. Think about the Bill Cuba year where you started out 4-1. You had Mike Riley, who literally handed you the win. Minnesota was terrible that year. Iowa was not that good. You almost won that game to go to five and one. I mean, okay, I, I'm just. Gonna Iowa stop. went undefeated that year. What are you talking about? That was a good Iowa team. Uh, they went undefeated. They went undefeated into the MSU game and then lost on that. Um, who was the running back for MSU that year? Who stretched the ball over the goal line in the Big Ten championship game? Were they really undefeated? Up to I'm that checking. Point? They were undefeated. They went twelve and zero. That was the twelve and two team that went eight and zero in the Big Ten. Twelve and zero to start, right, well, and then they lost the lost to Michigan State and lost to Rose Bowl. But my point is, if that was the best team in the West, if Keyshawn Vaughn doesn't fumble or whatever it was, you might have beaten them. Yep, that was so a I, lost year. That was a lost yeah. year because you start out four and one. You are one drive away from being the top team in the Big Ten West. And then you lose, I mean, aside from the Penn State game that year where you got absolutely blown out, you were in pretty much every game. You played Wisconsin close here on homecoming. You played, uh, you beat Nebraska. You played Northwestern close to the Northwestern team. You can't even count the Northwestern loss because that's the same day that the two-year extension is announced and everybody's all confused and. Yeah. yeah, if you told me after the Nebraska win that you are going to only win one game the rest of the year and that's going to be against Purdue, I would tell you uh, there's no way. There's no way you don't squeak out one more game that year. On the other hand, <laughs> Nebraska handed you a win you shouldn't have gotten, and you also yeah. beat beat Middle Tennessee State because they missed a field goal at the end of the game. So, yeah, essentially yeah. that team was probably as good as – I would say it probably should have won 6-6, six and six, all things considered. But It's the same as this past year, right? Yeah, In I think they I think last year's team is as good as their record. Yeah. Like they beat yeah, they're, they're two amazing yep. wins, but then they also lost to Eastern Michigan Northwestern. So uh, there you go. Well listen, it wouldn't be a two hundred yeah. level without a Bill Cubit mention. I, I'm gonna let you Cubes. guys go because it is Memorial Day and you should get out there and enjoy the sunny, hot, humid weather as I'm about to do now. Uh, the humidity is ninety eight percent right now. I just saw it on my phone. A little sticky. It is a little sticky. It is cloudy out here and I have work. So I will be That's doing right. neither of those things you said. Well, Harry, enjoy work. Trevor, enjoy whether you go outside or not again. Enjoy your uh, Memorial Day. Uh, on the other side of this, I had a conversation with Chuck Oplinski on Friday or on Thursday, I should say, about movies. So we got that as just kind of a bonus interview thing. Nice. But uh, going forward, I believe the three of us will be meeting on Sundays at some point and then posting our uh, weekly thing Monday mornings. I think that's the plan. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. We'll have, uh, well, I guess we'll, we won't have any more of the last dance stuff to talk about, so we'll just kind of shoot the breeze. We will shoot the breeze, and here's the good thing. Maybe within seven weeks from today, we may have live sports again with the NBA. <laughs> and actually, even less so than that, if, if, this is a big week for baseball, where if they come to an agreement, you're still looking at a July 4th opening weekend, which, you know, again, professional sports, I understand the risk is there for everybody, but uh, if that union agrees to it, you can bet your ass I'm going to be pretty excited about baseball as i know harry will be oh yeah dude i'm, I'm gonna get to that's all i'm gonna be watching that's all i'm gonna be cutting can't wait to hear jeff Passon talking about how proceedings are going with the mlbpa with that slow comforting voice he has you uh-uh. guys oh dear can, can i throw in one more thing real quick sure 
I don't understand the need to bring back every NBA team for five games. That just yeah. seems like you're asking. Do the Bulls need to bring 50 no. people to Orlando just to <laughs> risk getting infected for five games? You know what I'm going to love about the NBA starting? Because that seems more likely than any of these leagues starting again, is the schedule will probably have to be as such where they play games from dawn until like midnight. Oh, hell yeah. It's games awesome. all day. And I'm not even a big NBA fan, but you tell me that I can flip on the TV at any given time and check out an NBA game, let alone an NBA playoff series. I'm in. I'm totally it's like a holiday tournament in one of those weird like hotel ballrooms or yeah. something, right? Like I'm, around Thanksgiving. I'm on board for I that. Just, there's going to be like a Bulls-Knicks game on day two, and I'm just going to be <laughs> sitting there like, what are we doing? Like, what is the point of this? <laughs> You're watching it. There's not even any fans at this game. Why do I care? <laughs> that Mar- is weird, by the way, though. That I mean, you think about March. We were like, oh, I don't even know if I can watch it without fans. Now we're so desperate for anything, understandably. Oh, I'll take it. But, even but, back but then. We are forgetting, though, that it's going to sound and look really weird if, like, LeBron rips away for a dunk and there's just no noise. Yeah, what I will enjoy, again, though, I'll, I'll enjoy the chatter that maybe the mics pick up that they wouldn't normally otherwise. And I think that from, um, what was it, UFC fights, which I don't watch that, but for people that are UFC fans, that there's been some talk about how it's kind of cool to hear the, the corners in between each round and you actually hear what they're saying to their fighters. So I'm thinking the equivalent, sort of like that Illinois-Penn State game back in February, even though the coaches agreed to that, was hearing what goes on in the huddles between you know timeouts and things like that. So I think those little things will not 100% make up for the lack of fans, but it'll add a new twist to it. I'm excited to check Why are out. they doing UFC, by the way? Like That seems like the least safe. I mean, these guys are bleeding, spitting, and rubbing on each other for like two hours in an octagon. So much rubbing. Just ridiculous rubbing. Dana White was adamant that he wanted to be the first one back. I mean, it's his toy, so he does with it what he wants. Well, just if you rank like the safety and proximity of sports, it has to be like last on the list. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) On that note, boys, on the rubbing, sweating, touching... Yeah, Harry really made me want to join a football team when he said you were sweating into each other's mouths and rubbing it on was each my other favorite, and all sorts of It stuff. was my favorite part of the day, you guys. I mm. love bench pressing and having uh, – who, who would there be? Um, Darte Lee's sweat just dripping into my eyes. Nice. Wow. Some ba- Darte sweat. That's a badge uh, of honor. That's the best. All right, boys. Yeah. We'll have a good rest of your Memorial Day coming up here. We got a little interview with Chuck Kaplinski. What should our sign-off be, barbershop trio style? Hmm. Uh, we gotta throw in a Gimpy Pippins mention. Gimpy Pips, Gimpy Pips. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Okay. Who's starting? Harry, you want to be baritone here? Uh, I'll start. I'll start. Okay. Gimpy Pips. Going... Gimpy Pips. You... Okay, who's going last? Uh, I'll go last. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let's go. Okay. Gimpy Pips. Gimpy Pips. Gimpy Pips. It's the two under love. Initially, this interview with Chuck Kaplinski, and you can follow him on Twitter at C. Kaplinski, and also find his podcast, Real Talk. That's R-E-E-L, Talk. Great podcast with him and Pam Pal. 
wanted to talk movies before Memorial Day weekend. We had some audio issues that we had worked through, but I got them figured out in time to post with this podcast. It's about a 45-minute conversation. We ranged the gamut from blockbusters to kind of underrated flicks that maybe you haven't seen yet. I get to scratch that film buff itch. I mean, I would never profess to be an expert, but I love movies. So Chuck is a great person to talk to. And fortunately, it's the kind of topic that is evergreen, meaning that it's as good today as it would have been last Friday. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chuck Koplinski, film critic and co-host of The Real Talk. That's R-E-E-L Talk Podcast. Chuck, the last time that we talked, first off, it was face-to-face. It was in the basement, which I've since added. The great thing about this COVID-19 pandemic is I've been able to kind of put actual furniture as opposed to just patio furniture down here. But we were able to talk about theater experiences, going to the movie theater, and what was your favorite movie theater experience and vice versa. And what is your biggest concern as we sit here today about the future, whether it be the big box movie theaters or the independent movie theaters? What is your concern about the future of just movie going in general? Well, there's a lot going on there. And um, I have a feeling that, you know, we've already seen uh, the art close locally. And I have a feeling that those theaters like that are going to become few and far between. Because I have a feeling that the product that they specialize in, studios are not going to want to deal with that product. And if they do, it's going to go straight to streaming or straight to home video. The, the fact that Trolls made over $100 million skipping the theaters and going straight to video yeah. was exactly what the studios wanted to see. They've wanted to skip the theaters for years. Uh, you know, theaters take about 50% of the tickets. They only have to pay out 20% of their ticket price to whatever platforms that they have their movies on. So profitability is, you know, much more for them. So I think any medium-sized pictures – Anything under $100 million uh, that a studio might make will probably go straight to your home. Anything over $100 million, the big action films, the big superhero films, those will go to the theaters. I think the theaters for a while are just going to be for movies, you know, spectacle, the epics, those ones that have such a budget that they're going to need multiple admissions to make them profitable. Uh, I have a feeling that the number of screens is going to shrink. Shrink. We're at over 5,500 screens now in the country. That number is going to shrink considerably because I, I just don't think that they're going to get the product. So is this something that would happen without COVID-19 anyway? Is this only exacerbating it? I don't know. I mean, eventually... Yes. I mean, that whole window used to be a 90 day window between, you know, a film leaving the theaters and then coming to any sort of home video format, whatever it was. And that window has been consistently, consistently shrinking. Uh, you're right. This may have just accelerated that timeline uh, to where this is going to happen anyway. Um, either way, the theater going experience is in big, big trouble. Do I think it'll come back? Yes, it will. It always comes back. But not on the scale that we once knew. What's going to be interesting is seeing how much of AMC comes back and which other companies come back. I mean, locally, we've got Goodrich Theaters here, which had already filed for bankruptcy before this even happened. And they own the Savoy 16. I haven't heard of them restructuring anything or planning on coming back after this happens. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to be the exception. So I think the theater landscape is going to shrink a little bit once uh, for the for a couple of years before things get up and running. And then who knows what's going to happen. 
And then, will the quantity of movies, will that just inevitably go down because there's less money to be made in film? No, I don't think the quantity of movies is going to go down. I just think that the delivery systems are going to be different. Uh, like I say, something like Trolls, I mean, they're going to keep going back to that as their landmark. $100 million, just putting it on a platform and at home, that's an incredible number. And I think that just the number of movies aren't going to shrink as far as being made. I just think a lot of them are going to shift to that platform as far as being released. Because not only are the studios going to make more money doing that, but they're going to save a lot more money too, as opposed to having to make separate little hard drives for the movie to send out to 3,000 theaters. It's a win-win for them. And they're going to do that, you know, come hell or high water. As a consumer, I noticed that uh, there were a few movies that came out at the beginning of COVID-19. They brought The Invisible Man, which opened up in February. They brought that to streaming platforms, and I think it was 1999 or something like that. And that would that would have been a case that if I had had a Sunday afternoon and I wanted to go see a movie, I probably would have found my way to Savoy 16 or uh, up to the AMC and seen it. Yet, them asking me, which, which at the end of the day, I don't know if it's an unfair price, them asking me to pay 20 bucks to view this at home, I said, nah. Uh, I'll wait however many months it takes for it to get to a Netflix or Hulu. So I guess as long, in my mind, as long as the movies are still made, then I'm good. But uh, in terms of consuming them, do you, are, are you going to miss the amount of movies that you are able to see in a movie theater? Or are you okay with the home movie going experience? Have you kind of figured that thing out? I hate the home movie going experience, but then again, I'm an old man and I'm, you know, stuck in my ways. And this is going to the theaters the way I've always experienced them. Um, You know, it's all such a generational thing. You know, if the kids growing up today in this generation don't know any better, then that's what they'll become used to. Um, You know, watching movies and videos on their phone, you know, that's what they're used to. That would drive me uh, absolutely insane. Uh, you know, and the $20 uh, price point for these movies, yeah, if you're by yourself, that's pretty much, that, that that's maybe too expensive. But if you're paying, you know, if you're thinking of going with, uh, you know, on a date or something, 20 bucks to watch it at home, that's pretty darn affordable. And especially with something, again, I keep going back to trolls. If you're taking more than one kid, you're well over 20 bucks well past it so it's much more affordable for fare like that to be at home and and 20 bucks suddenly looks like a bargain um yeah i i will miss the experience uh as it is and i don't know there's always been something about that communal experience that i've liked that you just can't recreate at home and there's too many distractions at home i mean yeah my floor is not sticky and my screen's pretty clear but <laughs> the dog needs to go out and you know my wife needs to talk to me about something and you know it, it's just not the same yeah it certainly isn't and there's some kind of solitude that you get in a dark movie theater even if you go with other people i've always been the kind as weird of a social stigma as there is on this that is enjoys going to a movie by myself and that is a, a very relaxing thing even if it's an intense movie that is a, a great way for me to detach where I don't even think about looking at my phone. And an example would be watching Parasite at home, which I want to get to Parasite in a second. Uh, Watching Parasite at home, and I I check my phone once or twice. But it's still one or two more times than I would have had I been in the movie theater, which goes back to that idea that, you know, even if you're trying your best, trying your damnedest to make it a a true movie-going experience, if you're at home, there are just too many potential things that can get in the way of that. Yeah, those distractions, distractions. And, you know, and 
the movie theater is built for one thing just go in and sit and watch that movie uh so yeah yeah and, and you're right though i mean it's interesting that if a movie is good no matter where you see it it's going to transport you it's going to take you out of that environment that you're in i mean if you're talking about parasite and only checking your watch once you know while you're watching it i mean that that means you were pretty well engrossed speaking of which so the oscars they, that happened in a pre-pandemic world which i think what mid late february parasite wins yeah. best picture and, and i read an article today i read an uh a news thing saying that they're thinking of postponing the next next one. Probably so. And, and uh, trying to think of any path that we get to where you could have a few thousand people in a theater together, as big as the, what, Nokia Theater or whatever they have out there, Kodak Theater. Uh, uh, but the Oscars, it goes on without a hitch. I mean, I'm sure it was three and a half hours bloated, but... Uh, I remember thinking beforehand, we had a discussion about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I still very much enjoy. But after seeing Parasite, I thought, yeah, the right decision was made. Uh, Boong Joon-ho has become sort of the it director, yet it's hard to classify him in any genre. So whether it be Parasite or Snowpiercer or the one with the pig that I can't pronounce the name of, Okja? Okja. Uh, what is he... Do you look at him as one of the most unique directing voices out there? And if you had to describe it, I guess, in two or three words, Scorsese, there are certain attributes you see in every film of his. I haven't been able to pin that down quite yet with Boon Jong-ho. Uh, I think he's a very populist filmmaker. Uh, and I think the recurring theme that you see uh, within his films, and, and I don't know if you got to the host. No, his first movie, right? Which is kind of a scary his, monster. His monster thing, yeah. yeah. This theme is there and in there as well, but he's very much concerned about the class divide. That always seems to be an element in his movies. The difference between the, I guess we've taken into referring to them as the 1% and those of us who are below that. Uh, I, I think that seems to be the hot button topic that is always present in his films. So uh, very much he's a very social, humanistic uh, uh, filmmaker and very much of his time right now. I mean, this is a subject and that uh, needs to be discussed no matter what the culture. And I think he uh, really keyed in on that with Parasite. The attributes that he has as a director that I appreciate, and specifically in Parasite, it really struck me. Uh, I had read a review that said he it's the kind of movie that you watch and you can just tell that he is in total control of the craft, whether it be the cinematography or the actual direction of the actors. Uh, so what is his strength, I guess? You, you mentioned the thematic elements that he touches on, but what is it specifically about his directing ability that sets him apart from other young directors? Well, you know, one thing that I've been noticing lately, uh, I've been watching because of, you know, the shift and everything because of the pandemic, I've been being, uh, studios have been sending me screeners of independent films, uh, things that would normally bypass uh, theater, the theater experience and go straight to streaming or Amazon or whatever. And I noticed so many of those films have problems with pacing. He does not. He knows how to move the story along in a progressive manner that gets you, I, I, that gets you sucked into the story. And as you were talking about, you block everything out. And I think that's the skill of a master storyteller. You talk about being in command of all the elements. It all has to come together, though. And that story has to suck you in and move. And that's what he does. I mean, Parasite runs well over two hours. I think it even comes two and in a almost half. two and a half. And it never feels that way. No. It never feels that way. And that's the sign of a guy that, that knows what he is doing, as far as, as you're saying, 
all these all the craft of, of filmmaking you know howard hawks the great howard hawks said that every scene in a movie has got to move the story along and that sounds like a very simple concept and very obvious yet when you go back and watch movies it's a very difficult thing to do because there's so many extraneous things going on potentially interfering with that he doesn't have that problem and things move along in a nice clip. So I'm, I think at the core, he's just a great storyteller. And everything else falls into place after that. Yeah, to that point, I think within the first 20 minutes of Parasite, the whole thing's established. And right. the characters are in the place that they're going to be for the the remaining two hours. Certainly does not feel like it's runtime. And by comparison, as again, much as I enjoyed, and I, I don't want to say loved, but enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... There are about 30 minutes of screen time that I could make the argument that it sucks you into this world, this dreamlike thing, but someone could counter and say, well, listen, uh, did it really move the story along or was it just a director that, while skilled, wants to puff it up a little bit with his own stylistic flourishes and things like that? Well, Tarantino is very much a self-indulgent filmmaker. Uh, you know, he... he he, he, his passions are obvious as far as certain time periods and certain subjects. And he's in the enviable position to where he can do whatever he wants. Uh, you know, no one's going to tell him to cut anything or uh, add anything. Uh, he has that autonomy, good or ill, uh, that most filmmakers wish for. Uh, yeah, I could argue that too, that, you know, once upon a time in Hollywood, it probably could have been a half hour shorter, maybe 20 minutes shorter. But at the same time, I didn't mind it because it was such an immersive experience, very much like The Irishman, which I still feel was the best film that year. Yeah, Scorsese, probably too long, but he has that largesse as well. And he's able to suck us into that certain uh, environment that he creates. Um, there's something to be said with taking your time. You know, we're in such a hurry nowadays in everything that we do. Uh, and a lot of the Hollywood product shows that as well. You're talking about the difference you said between young filmmakers and more veteran filmmakers. I think more veteran filmmakers have more of a confidence. They're not in such a hurry. And is that good or bad? I don't know. Or is it just on, uh, on us as the viewer to have to, um, to know what we're getting into? Yeah. Saying, okay. This one's going to be, I know this guy's style, so we're not in a hurry. We're going to just kind of soak in the ambiance of all this. And I know that. And you know this as well. You know, those are the types of films that come out towards the end of the year. Uh, when Oscar season is coming, when, you know, we're staying inside a little bit longer. Uh, I think maybe it just takes a, an adjustment on our part as a viewer uh, to, to be open to that. With The Irishman, I think, what, three and a half hours. So it's 210 minutes, I'm pretty sure. And I was just thinking about that to the point of every scene moving the story along, as long as that runtime is. I've now watched it, I think, uh, three times and then a fourth time where I was chunking it up uh, kind of according to this internet thing that was going along that if you want to make it like episodic, like a TV series, you could do it like this. I did that once uh, just for time. But it did feel upon repeated viewings that there wasn't wasted scenes. There wasn't anything that was extraneous. And we had talked about this before I saw it. The primary complaint, which I think is so it, it is superficial by its nature, this complaint is the CGI effects on De Niro and Pesci. Right. And my argument is I don't want to see actors playing young Pesci or De Niro or Pacino. I want to see, Pesci, De Niro, and Pacino for one last time. I'm willing to suspend disbelief when you give me that kind of talent in a film for one last time. Well, and 
I, I felt that the effects were fine. They were initially jarring. But again, this is this a another adjustment that we have to make as viewers. Uh, this is a great leap forward as far as the technology of filmmaking uh, is concerned. And we've had to make those leap forward leaps forward on many occasions, if you look at the history of film and how it's changed over the years. Um, I think perhaps the what was so jarring about it is that it is used so often in the film. I mean, we've seen examples of this before periodically in other movies. I think there was one of the X-Men films where we had uh, Professor X and Magneto as young men in an opening scene. And that was, you know, fine. But again, these are just adjustments that we have to make. For me, though, again, when we go back to the story and how engrossing it was, after a while, I wasn't paying attention to that. I was concerned about what was going on. And that's another skill as a filmmaker is you being able to block that stuff up and out and just be able to focus on character, motivation, and, and story. So with this pandemic, it's a great opportunity. I mean, for all the bad parts of it, it's a great opportunity to revisit films that you may have seen or check out uh, whether it be favorites that you've seen or whether it be, let's say, a director that you might be fond of, but there were a few little nuggets that maybe you didn't check out. So what... What has been your MO in terms of watching movies or have you kind of been all over the map in the last couple months? Well, you know, I've got a, a pretty extensive uh, home video collection. I've got over 350, you know, Blu-rays and another 150 DVDs. And, you know, they sit on the shelf. It's nice to have them. They sit on the shelf. You know that they're there. But, you know, on a daily basis, how often do I actually pull something off and actually watch it? You know, so I've been going back and just pulling random things off the shelf that you know, I haven't seen in a long time and wondering, hmm, does it still need to be on the shelf or does it need to go in the pile to go out to disc replay once this opens up and I need to clear things out? So it's been a lot of fun going back and rediscovering Inception. I mean, I, I haven't seen that in years. And I'm like, wow, does it really live up to the hype? And God, God damn, what a great film. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I had never seen the the diary of uh, uh, the miracle worker, and I oh, pulled wow. that off the shelf. I, yeah, that was one that had gotten by me, and I was blown away by that. Uh, Tropic Thunder, I hadn't seen in a while. And my son said, "Do you have anything funny?" You know, because I was <laughs> I said, "Okay, pal, sit down. Yeah, buckle up. We're gonna laugh." I watched that again, and the funny thing about that was that I wondered, it's still effective, it still works, and I'm glad it was made because I don't think it would be made today. Probably would not. But it still has a lot to say about representations of race and our preconceptions of people and characters on film. And it just came off to me as so daring and still so current that uh, unfortunately I think people are going to brush it aside for all the wrong reasons. So I think you're right. It's a good time to go back and check things out. I've wanted to actually, funny, curiously, I've been wanting to go back and look at John Carpenter. Um, you know, there's the ones that we always see, the ones that, you know, how many times have I seen Halloween? How many times have I seen The Thing? And there are movies of his that I watched once when they came out and I brushed them aside, but they've still, over the years, they've gotten kind of a cult mm-hmm. following uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, Prince of Darkness. Uh, so I'm going to go back and look at those again to see what I missed. See, uh, see, see, see if see if this cult following is deserved. Because you're right, this is the time to do these types of things, and uh, it's also a great forum I'm noticing on Facebook and other video, uh, you know, social um, 
what do you call those things? Media, social yeah, media, apps. <laughs> you young people. All these kids. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of great conversations going on uh, about things like that. So it's good to see that I'm not the only one, you know, doing this and that you want this to prompt conversation. Are you going to go all the way back to assault on Precinct 13? Is that how far back you're going to go in the Carpenter uh, filmography? No, 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 no. I like that film. I like that film. It just seems as though, like, uh, from The Thing all the way through, you know, after The Thing, things for me are real spotty with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that he hit kind of a fallow period. But, you know, I've been reading a lot of in-depth conversation about even something like Ghosts of Mars, which... I thought it was a real stinker. <laughs> like, okay, well, I'll give it another shot. You know, and the other great thing about this staying at home stuff, the one good thing about watching movies at home is that when I pay a movie or go to the movie theater, I feel compelled to watch the whole thing. Am I at home? No. Yeah, but stinks. 20, 20 minutes in, if I'm not into it, boo, we're going to move on to the next thing. And, you know, it's it, it's no big deal. Let's talk about Inception, because that's actually on our Netflix watch list. And I saw it the winter. It came out summer of, what, 2006, maybe? Something like that, yeah. And uh, that Christmas, it would have been out on DVD. So we get it, and we had a Christmas Eve tradition of watching it. And while I enjoyed it, uh, it's dense. And it was a Christmas Eve where you're kind of, you know, gorging on hors d'oeuvres, and you're making a drink over here, and you're just talking. You can't do that, I'm guessing, with Inception. But uh, with Christopher (laughs) Nolan... I mean, talk about a great filmography, and it's a shame, too, that the movie coming out this summer, which was kind of shrouded in secrecy, Tenet, apart from, I think, an opening scene that they released before one of the big superhero movies or something, but um, is that the kind of movie, and this is total speculation, do you think that a perfectionist like him, whose films demand to be seen on a big screen, would just shelve it until it's okay to go back to theaters? Or do you think he's going to say, I want it out there, and Warner Brothers or whoever produced it is going to say, we got to get this out there July 2020 like we planned? I think that one is going to be on the big screen no matter what. I I think you're right. If that July date comes and goes and theaters are still aren't up and running, you know, yeah, that one's going to get kicked down the line. And that's what I mean. That's the type of film that they're going to reserve for that big screen experience. And I'm sure he wants it that way. And I'm sure Warner Brothers wants to keep him happy. Uh, so, so yeah, that'll definitely happen. What's interesting though, is just if when you're looking at that schedule of movies that have been kicked down the line, if that holds true, we're going to have a really crowded November and December. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. And things are going to have to give, I have to tell you a big surprise this week. Uh, did you see the news about Greyhound? The bus system? No, the Tom Hanks film. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, I did not know. What was the news about it? Well, Greyhound was as a Tom Hanks submarine film, World War II. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I did not see the news about it, though. And that was going to be Father's Day release. And obviously that was not going to happen. And I figured, okay, well, they're going to hold this back. This has all of the earmarks of being a Oscar contender. I bet they're going to release it in November. They're going to, you know, Tom Hanks, how are you going to go wrong? This is automatic Oscar bait, blah, blah, blah. They sold it to Apple TV. Apple TV. So exclusivity, like you need to have Apple TV to watch this thing. They got a 15-year license on a Tom Hanks World War II film. 
Wow. Before it goes to theaters, it's not going to go to theaters. When you look up the trailer to this, you're going to see that it's a movie that you probably would have liked to have seen in theaters. And that's the type of paradigm shift you're seeing as far as the release of these films is concerned. That stunned me because it went exactly opposite of what I thought was going to happen. Like I said, the big movies going to the big screen. I don't know whether, I think it was Sony. I don't know if Sony has problems with their assets and they needed to unload something. Yeah. The movie only cost them $70 million, which surprised me. You know, it, it just, this, this, everything's shifting as far as the economics of film is concerned. Uh, but I think back to Tenet, that one is going to be big enough that they're going to hold on to it. And also watch for Warner Brothers. They got a big film coming out in December, uh, the remake of Dune. Oh, that's right. Directed by Dennis, Dennis Villanueva. Thank you. I can't pronounce it for some reason. And everyone's watching that one because they're saying that, you know, they spent, I think, over $200 million on the film. It's one of those that needs to be seen on a big screen, but they're worried because it's not pre-sold. There's not a big name in it. It's not a superhero thing. It's not an established franchise. So they're really worried about whether this thing is going to fly with people and whether people will flock back in big enough numbers to theaters to make this profitable. So watch that film. Warner Brothers has got a lot at the line here uh, over the next six months. You mentioned Dune. It had been made by David Lynch Mm -hmm. somewhat unsuccessfully, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then before <laughs> that, there was a great documentary and the original, the director Jodorowsky, yep. Russian director. Had uh-huh. you seen the documentary about how that film almost came to be? But then I think his initial plan was for like an eight, nine hour movie and it yeah. just kind of collapsed yeah, in its he, own weight. It was insane. Absolutely insane. And a lot of people remember, don't remember that Sci-Fi Channel made a miniseries of Dune after that. Okay. And William Hurt was in it. And that, I think, was six hours. Uh, which was, you know, much more in line with Frank Herbert's, you know, epic vision of this thing. Um, I don't know. I, all the talent he has on Villanueva has always been a, a, an intriguing director. Uh, he, he he constantly surprises me. I'm really anxious to see what he does with this. I mean, I loved Arrival uh, with Amy Adams. Uh, and I thought that his Blade Runner sequel was just fantastic. And those are the two I haven't seen. I've seen Prisoners, which, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, I remember seeing the trailer for it and thinking that this looks a little too overwrought, melodramatic, but holy crap. And then a uh, little, I say little film, uh, with Jake Gyllenhaal, Enemy, where yeah. it's uh, Doppelganger, which that one, for people that want to stream something, that's on Netflix right now, and I'd, I'd recommend it because I thought it was terrific. But um, There's a scene in that film that scared the hell out of me. Is it the very final shot? No, no. Oh. When he turns the corner and the big thing is in the room. Yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jarring. Jarring. Yeah, I don't usually crawl up into my chair, but that one made me do it. Uh, a challenging director. And that's the type of guy you want to say. He, he, you know, he would, he's the guy who's going to inherit the mantle of Nolan, very much the tradition mm-hmm. of him uh, as far as challenging and epic type things. And so um, fingers are crossed for Dune on that one. I was talking with my wife about blockbuster films and how star wars have i had that nostalgia built in so whenever a star wars movie comes out i'm going to see it superhero movies not quite as much batman yeah but we watched the original pirates of the caribbean and fun movie (laughs) Uh, you know it's it's i felt a little bit long but it's still very entertaining while it's on good passive entertainment and then this thought struck me and i wanted to run it by you that in terms of blockbusters that i've seen the one that i go back to as just 
endlessly rewatchable, and it still holds up, I guess, 27 years after it came out. Jurassic Park is one that I I was stunned two years ago rewatching it, how it looks every bit as good as movies that come out now. And that for its runtime, you're just in it. No matter how many times you see it, it feels to me like the perfect blockbuster. Are there any other, I guess, blockbusters you look at that, that should sort of be the template for the big summer popcorn movie? Well, you know, you got Spielberg there, so obviously he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Harvest Moon drive-in here in Gibson City has reopened, uh, and they put out, they just put in a notice today that they're running Jurassic Park in June. Okay. So there you go. That's, uh, yeah, that will they, be on the calendar then. There's as big as a big screen experience as you're going to have, uh, you know, in the foreseeable future. You know, the one thing about summer blockbusters, the the, the criticism sometimes is, is that they're empty. You know, that it's just throwaway entertainment. Yeah. And, you know, there's not, no intelligence behind it. And we certainly have had plenty of examples of that. And I always go back to one of my all-time favorite films and a film that no one talks about in Spielberg's filmography, and that's Minority Report. Oh, yeah. Minority Report came out in June that year. And to me, that was the perfect combination of thrills, action, and intelligence. Such a smart, smart movie. And a movie that has proved to be so prescient you go back and look at that now and you're going to say, holy cow, they were right on the money about that. They had predicted that. They predicted that. Uh, so so I always kind of use that as my marker as to, OK, you can thrill me, but are you going to engage me up here, too? Uh, and very few movies hit that mark as far as the summer blockbuster. But that's always kind of what I'm hoping for. It's a great call on Minority Report, which, if I recall, was June of 2001. So it was before a pre-9-11 movie. I'd have to check that, but uh, yeah. cer- certainly all the more pertinent to what's going on now, the, the subject matter in that. And Spielberg had that run, it felt like, of sci-fi, where certainly Minority Report, which is, I don't know if it's a Philip K. Dick story. Yes, it is. Okay. And then- and go back and read the original story. It is nothing like the movie. Okay. And then my hats off then to Scott Frank, who I believe was a screenwriter. He just an incredible job. Yeah, Spielberg. He followed that up, I believe, with War of the Worlds, which, eh, you know, good, but and Minority Report says such a high bar, right? But, but and, and my War of the Worlds is definitely a nine eleven film. Yeah, that's true, and that would have been I think two thousand three or four that that mm-hmm. one would have came out. And yeah. then he seemed to go into this phase of the quiet little movie. And I mean, Bridge of Spies to me is one of those examples, or the the Post, which I've yet to see. And what is his? There was an HBO documentary about him that I think is two yeah. and a half hours because he got to cover everything. Yeah, it's really good. But uh, what is his legacy? I mean, he maybe gets unfairly pegged as that popcorn director. And yet he's got as varied of a filmography as anybody else. What would be a fair criticism of Spielberg if there is one? Well, I think that he's a master craftsman. You look at his films and visually, visually, they are always just exquisite to look at. And not just from a technical point of view, uh, as far as the special effects and things of that nature, but he knows how to frame a shot. He knows how to compose a shot. And I love that. He he is a perfect throwback to the old film directors in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. These guys who have these, you know, 40-year careers who are consistently churning out, if not completely successful films, always interesting films. You know, he's had some interesting failures along the way. Uh, 
and, and that's, you know, some people would have just been, their career would have been done after some of the things that he'd done, but you, you keep watching him because you know that that talent, that talent is there. I think we've got a guy on our hands right now who's a little bit bored. Um, I have no idea why we're remaking West Side Story. <laughs> it's puzzling. No it's puzzling. You know, yeah. you know, but like we were saying with Tarantino, he and Scorsese, he can do whatever he wants. You know, if he went into universe and said, I want to make a uh, film about my laundry list, they change first, Stephen, <laughs> go and do your thing. Sure. Uh, so, and, and of course, I haven't seen anything about West Side Story. He's got a great cast. I'm sure he's got a new take on things. Uh, but he's just a very workmanlike, great storyteller. Again, his movies move. I mean, I don't have no way. I don't know how many times you've seen Jaws. I don't uh, know how many times I've seen Jaws. Five, six. But every damn time you watch that film, it's terrific. you are sucked in. Sucked in. And I think that's a hallmark of his films, too. He quickly sucks you in and emotionally, emotionally grabs you. Well, that's, even amidst all of the, the spectacle. That's just it, because back to the Jurassic Park idea, it's to this day, and of course John Williams and that score has a big part to do with it, but to this day, the, oh, the shot of the first side of the brontosauruses going mm-hmm. through the fields and then the music kicks in and I still have to kind of catch myself and you know that's the chill up the spine and well up a little bit because it's just so powerful it's a perfect moment and E.T. I guess for me E.T. was that I was a teenager when that came out and you know just a mess at the end of that film and sure. a mess at the end of that film every time you watch it he he's a filmmaker with heart and I think that that's going to be his legacy and, you know, you mentioned that HBO doc, uh, documentary and having to cover every, uh, cover everything. Jesus, there's a lot to cover. Yeah, a, a ton, a ton. Uh, there was a book that I read called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Yes, Peter Beskind. Yeah, and there's another one for, about the 90s independent film movement that I have and I need to actually sit down and, and read. But the Spielberg-Lucas contingent, and I guess Coppola was sort of, they were all buddies. And right. then you had the more maverick filmmakers. I'm trying to think. I mean, Coppola kind of straddled both of those worlds. Right. Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese. I mean, uh, De Palma. Well, yeah, and De Palma, too. And actually, you know, Mission Impossible was on CBS Sunday night, the original. And I, I was struck by, which that's become a great action franchise. In the opening, the first one, you know, my wife made a comment that, man, this isn't quite as, it doesn't move like the new ones. And I was like, yeah, but it's got all those signature over the top Brian De Palma moments and speaking are, of another are you able to explain that film to me by the way what the the first Mission Impossible yeah the plot of that thing I still can't no. figure out what the hell is going on I think it's simply a vehicle for the two <laughs> set pieces where he's okay. in the room with the computers and he's got to avoid the floor right, right, right? right. that's been, oh, been parodied how many times yeah and then the the train scene at the end, which is great. I mean, it still holds up. But um, there was another documentary about Brian De Palma. And I'm glad you mentioned him because that was the name I could not remember from that book for some reason. And he is someone that has a varied film career. He's been all over the map and he is over the top and he's unapologetically. I mean, I said melodramatic earlier. Uh, and I forget which movie I was. Well, Prisoners is what I was referring to. What would be a good starter kit for someone that has seen oh. a Carrie or a Untouchables to dig deeper into De Palma? And I'm basically asking this for myself because I've only seen the big De Palma movies. You know, the one that I love of his that no one ever mentions uh, is Carlito's Way. Oh, okay. With Al Pacino. 
uh, and Sean Penn. Uh, it's based on a true story, and Pacino is a gangster uh, who is paroled, and uh, he really doesn't know what to do with his with his life. Uh, he's kind of stuck, and uh, Penn is his crooked lawyer, and it has got a sequence in it at the end, a chase sequence uh, that goes from a nightclub to a uh, up a subway stairs into a train all the way through the track. I, I just don't want to give away, but yeah, sure. and it's one of one of Pacino's great unsung performances as well. So I'd say Carlito's way, uh, a movie that a lot of people, people love that I think is overrated is blow up. I have seen that. Uh, or blow out. I should say one of Travolta's better performances. Yeah. He's great in it, but a movie I think is a bit overrated, uh, dress to kill. Okay. With uh, Angie Dickinson and Michael Caine. Hmm. This is his homage to psycho and it has one of the great, plot twists of all time in it uh that 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 is definitely uh prime de palma um and you know he's a guy who i always admire because as you said he kind of follows his, the beat of his own drum if the movies don't make any money he still goes out and does what he wants to do and, and more power to him uh unfortunately you know he's not getting the opportunities uh anymore uh, because, you know, the studio system has changed and basically forgotten about it. Still, he's big enough in Europe to get financing for little films every once in a while. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, a guy who I think in years to come, a lot of people are going to rediscover and say, hmm, wow, he should have got a fair shake. You did mention Snake Eyes. Oh, I'm geez, just kidding. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before I let you go, just a couple more questions. Uh, I, I guess a general one here would just be, you know, recommendations, whether it be things that are readily available on Netflix or really for that matter. I think people are resourceful enough that no matter the streaming service or, you know, there, there are ways to watch movies basically anywhere now. So what would be maybe just a, you know, two or three things that you've watched over the last couple months that really, you mentioned the miracle worker being something that you had not really watched before anything yeah. else. Uh, I tell you, you know, before the whole shutdown occurred, there were two great movies in theaters uh, that no one saw. Uh, and then they've now they've gone to streaming and home video. I loved Emma, the update of the Jane Austen novel. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fantastic. And I loved the way back with Ben Affleck. Okay. I've never thought Affleck was much of an actor, but boy, he really digs deep here. It's a story of redemption. It's a story about a guy who's an alcoholic who's fighting that. And you can tell that Affleck himself is digging into his own personal experience. You know, and it looks as though it's just going to be a cliched sports movie. It's so much more than that. So much more than that. And also, I would tell people, and, you know, I'm a big nerd like this, but, you know, one of the great treasure troves that we have at our disposal is Turner Classic Movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, the old classics that are there uh, that people either don't know about or take for granted. I would say, you know, give something a shot on that channel. I mean, every week there's at least 10, 15 gems, of, you know, all time great movies there. You know, give those a shot, too, and, and try and drag your kid in front of, in front of it and make them down and make them watch a black and white movie. Yeah, to that, to that point, there were a few Sundays ago during the Jordan documentary on ABC or on ESPN, and Trevor, who's on the show uh, every week, he he texted me beforehand and said, guys, I I can't watch the documentary tonight. My my grandma wants to watch Casablanca on Turner Classic Movies. <laughs> I said, dude, that's fine. That's not a problem. It's a great, great flick. It holds up. And had he seen it before? He had not. 
Uh-huh. And did you get a reaction out? Yeah, he said it was great. And it is one of those movies that, I mean, talk about, you know, it just goes. There's no wasted scene in that one. And an odd, I don't know enough about the history in detail, but I remember reading that it was an odd production that had some, maybe, I don't know about a change in director or screenwriter, but it was not the, the smoothest production. And yet somehow on the other side of it came this movie that is just, you know, Tied up in a little bow. It's picture perfect. Yeah, the script wasn't done. Okay, they were. They were. Bogart was complaining. They were getting new pages every day. You know, and how he how could he prepare? He he's told an account that apparently the director Michael Curtiz had him stand and and nod, and he said, "Just sit, do that, will you, please?" <laughs> he's and good Bogart at it. Though. Had, he had no idea what he was nodding about, yeah. or or anything like that. Uh, that was a film that was very much uh, saved in the editing room. Uh, as far as taking those pieces and putting them together. And you're right. It's funny. I, I did a little piece for WCIA not too long ago about people, about movies where people are stuck, you know, because we're all stuck right mm-hmm. now. And Casablanca is a film where everyone's stuck. True. I mean, I think there's maybe three locations in the entire film. And yet, as you point out, that film moves. God, does it move. The dialogue is so quick. The camera movements, the camera placement. I mean, that's a master filmmaker there with these characters all stuck, and yet you're breathless at the pace of it. Yeah. And then you, you brought up one thing, and this is the last question, because I could keep you for two hours. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. You mentioned editing, and when I think of editing, because it's easier to see in a movie like A Boogie Nights by Paul Thomas Anderson, which got its editing style from a Goodfellas, you know, that snap, you know, quick paced, you know. Uh, super fast cuts from one scene to the next. Right. What What in your mind is you know you're teaching a film class and someone says what is a master class in editing? Are there a few movies that come to your mind where it's like I mean you mentioned Casablanca was essentially saved by it. Are there other films where editing clearly elevated that movie's overall quality? Uh, there's an old western called Shane. Yes. Oh, it's true. It's so good. Shane, to me, is whenever I teach editing, I look at Shane, and there's a particular sequence in Shane that I show. There's a fight sequence between the lead actor, Alan Ladd, mm-hmm. and a guy by the name of Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson was about six foot three. Alan Ladd was about five foot six. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, and George Stevens had to come up with this fight sequence in which it may seem to be a fair fight. And it's absolutely ridiculous if you see these two guys standing next to each other. And through the choreography of the characters, the placement moving of the camera, but more importantly, the editing, he pulls this whole feat off to make it look as though this is a fair fight and that there is no height difference and that it is just masterful, masterful, the editing of that sequence and all the way throughout. You know, a lot of people say that that's the most important part of the filmmaking process. And in many ways, I would agree with that. Uh, I always thought it would be fun to, you know, you and then me and somebody else to give us, you know, the, the raw footage of any film. Right. And we all go in the editing room and, uh, you know, to see the different things that we would come out with. Cause you know, d- different editors, different people, you'd have completely different films, even if you're starting with the same material. To me, it'd be daunting just uh, the hours upon hours of stuff. And then you got to choose. I mean, does editing include choosing the best take? I mean, is that often the editor's job or is that decided at the end of a a day of shooting and they say, all right, we're taking takes 33, 50, whatever? It depends on the filmmaker. Okay. It depends on the filmmaker. Uh, Like uh, Scorsese, the Thelma Schumacher, who he works with, he trusts her to pick the best shot. 
some more some directors are more hands-on and will sit right next to them and pick the best show. John Ford, the great filmmaker, he knew he did not have final cut. So he would shoot a scene maybe twice. And that was it. Because he knew that then he was giving them no choices whatsoever. <laughs> so, in, so in a sense, he was controlling the final yeah. cut of the film by limiting their choices of what he gave them. That's pretty cool. You, you got me now when you mentioned Shane. I had a little bit of a Western kick a few years ago, and I'm thinking this, this is not, as good a time as any. Because a lot of those films have themes of... Well, I don't know. And maybe I'm just thinking the setting of the West and just the vastness of it. I'm thinking isolation and just, you know, Shane in particular, that one and the searchers were the ones that really just like gut punch in, in terms of, oh, yeah. there's other great Westerns that you think, Oh, that's pretty cool. Like high noon. That's a cool movie. But you know, Shane and the searchers have a lot of weight to them. Yeah. And my son doesn't realize this, but we're going to be watching dances with wolves over the next couple of days. Okay. You know, it's rainy and we've got the time. It's got that epic look, but also the, you know, it's over three hours. Uh, and that's one that I go back to constantly, even though people have come to bash it. I don't know why. I think it really holds up well. Kevin Costner in his epic movies, you know, you got Dances with Wolves was the peak of it. And then there was The Postman. Are you guys going to watch The Postman anytime soon? The Postman is a vastly underrated film. That's I've heard people say that before. It's so the runtime. I'm still leery about checking it out, but. I can defend The Postman more than I can defend Waterworld. Okay. All right. And even <laughs> Waterworld's gotten a bit of a critical reappraisal. It, it was such a expensive bomb, and it painted a lot of people's perceptions of it, but ultimately it seems like it's enter- entertaining enough. It's not a bad movie. It's Mad Max on the water. That's yeah. all it is. Nothing wrong with it. And Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper's in yeah. it, too. And it was the same thing with Ishtar, the uh, Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman thing. Yeah. That got bashed before it even came out because of the whole budget th- concerns, as you say. But you go back and watch it, there's some incredibly hysterical sequences there. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I'm in the mood to go watch some movies now. It's a great day there for we it. Go. It's a perfect day for it. <laughs> and uh, I think we are going to start with Inception because you mentioned that it was on our watch list anyways. And this time I'll actually be able to give it the concentration it deserves. All right. Well, you get back to me as to what you picked up. Okay. Chuck, where can we find uh, your stuff over this time? Where can we find your reviews and uh, a podcast as well? Uh, Real Talk with Chuck and Pam. That's R-E-E-L. Real Talk with Chuck and Pam dot com or on Facebook. You can find our reviews as well as links to our podcasts, everything and way too much. Uh, more than you'd want to know about me and Pam Powell in our movies. Excellent. Well, it's summer vacation for us teachers, so, well, almost. Yes. So, apart from a few wind services next week, and then it's, well, nothing really changes, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who knows what the fall will bring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Chuck, we'll do this again, because I, I, like I said, could do this for hours, and uh, it's always good talking movies with you. Hey, anytime, Mike, and hey, I wouldn't mind, you know, sitting down at some point after this is all done and just watching a couple things with you. I would love that. Let's let's plan on that, and hopefully it's sooner rather than later. You bet. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate it. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. So that was Chuck Kaplinski. A lot of fun talking with him, and it's true that I could talk hours about movies. So what we'll do, I think, going forward is try to get him on every two, three months and some regularity, because as we're in the middle of this stay-at-home order... We're all watching movies. We're watching Netflix. And the great thing about Chuck is that encyclopedic knowledge of movies can lead us to maybe some flicks that we haven't seen or things on streaming services that are worth watching. Also, earlier, Trevor and Harry, and Harry had sent me a text when we were done, sent it to me and Trevor actually saying, hey, sorry for getting fired up. I actually thought it was really compelling stuff to listen to. And that conversation I enjoyed 
knowing that Harry would have thoughts and perspective that myself or Trevor would not, just as a former student athlete, and to see the passion with which he spoke about, come on, the student athlete tag that gets thrown around so often, there's, there's some issues with that, as we're seeing right now with Illinois and other schools trying to open up. What I do want to make clear to the listeners out there, though, is that in no way am I saying, or Trevor, or even for that matter, Harry, saying that this is the definitive 100% way that it has to be. We aren't doing that because we simply don't have the answers for that. But I'm glad that conversation happened. And frankly, it's a lot better that that happened than the initial opening segment that would have come out with the Chuck Plinsky episode last Friday. So instead, we get this nice, supersized, double-decker of an episode with Harry and Trevor in the front end, Chuck Plinsky on the back end, and uh, plenty of time this week to consume this podcast before we get to a guest on Thursday or Friday. That's to be determined who that may be. But Chances are we're, we're also going to have more sports stuff to talk about, specifically baseball, NBA, those two sports coming back, and we should know a lot more about that this week. And then also maybe word from Whitman or other colleges about what plans they have for fans in the fall, tailgating in the stadiums. It seems almost crazy to me that they're already considering something like that. I would almost say, okay, well, get the students on campus, make sure that you can operate that part of it. But on the other hand, these games are going to be coming sooner rather than later. And if you do have any plan to get fans in the lots or in the stadiums, it sort of needs to be introduced now so people can get comfortable with it, get familiar with what those policies may be. I would love to tailgate this fall, but what that looks like, I don't know. And knowing Lot 31, even with the bad Illinois football teams, it tends to get pretty crazy in there. I don't think social distancing would go so well in a Lot 31. All those things, we'll answer them as we go. We'll talk about them as they go because they're always going to be under development, constantly changing. And I guess that's our new sports news now, is waiting to find out when sports return and in what fashion. So we'll be on top of that as we go through this week and into the summer, which, hey, Summer has officially begun. You had a nice hot weekend. Hope you enjoyed it, got outside, and maybe even had a chance to hang out with a little bit of family and friends. Uh, Karen and I were able to hang out with my parents, which was great. And there is something just comforting about that social aspect, which we didn't really get for about a month and a half, two months. It's amazing the difference it makes in just being able to talk to other people. So hopefully you had a little bit of that this weekend. We will see you later this week. Of course, thanks to DP Doe, Fourth and Kirby, State Farm Agent Brian Hansen, also Alana Inquirer and the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. We'll be back on Thursday or Friday with another episode of The 200 Level.